Hello everyone, I hope you are well. I'm Carlos Carnicero Uravallen and I want to welcome you all to Future is Blue, a series of podcasts bringing together top experts from academia and think tanks to discuss the most pressing European economic and policy challenges of today. This is a Funkas Europe initiative and we hope we can bring new ideas for a more inspiring debate about Europe. Is globalization going into reverse mode? Disruptions in supply chains caused by the coronavirus lockdowns, together with the war in Ukraine and the economic and trade war that the West is fighting with Russia, are more and more seen as evidence of a deglobalization trend. Obviously, the implications of a deglobalizing world are enormous for the world economy and for the EU in particular. So I'm joined to discuss this interesting topic by Raymond Torres, Funkas Europe Director. Hello, Raymond. Hello. Happy to join in. Thank you. So, Raymond, there is growing concern among academics and policymakers about a reversal of global trade flows and investment liberalization flows, or rather, let's call it for the sake of simplicity, deglobalization. So what is driving these trends? These trends uh, already started a few years ago and they are real. So, for example, uh, we see that uh, the global trade in goods and services, um, and now it's growing at the same pace as uh, global activity or even below global activity. Whereas, let's say, in the golden age of globalization, in the early 2000s, we, had, we were talking about twice as fast as, as global activity. Uh, in addition to that, we see the projections for the IMF for the next uh, three or four years. Uh, global trade would be growing even less than global activity. So we're talking about a real slowdown in the international economic integration between countries. The same is true when you look at investment, foreign direct investment, which is a, a very important uh, instrument uh, for, the, for globalization. And here too, we're seeing a, a downward trend according to untagged statistics which would be pursued again in 2022. Of course, the Ukraine war and geopolitical tensions are an additional factor, and this is one of the reasons why we would expect further deglobalization in the, in the terms you defined before in the next few years. But in addition to that, there is a certain awareness among uh, the business world, among enterprises, that they cannot rely so much compared to the past, on very extensive global value chains where you produce in one location and then you send those goods to other locations which can be very far. Instead, there is a phenomenon now of producing closer to the destination countries to where consumption takes place. And that's a major driver as well. And, and finally, of course, the, um, I mean, the trade liberalization uh, 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 move I mean, is, is getting into uh, fatigue. There are less and less uh, global trade agreements. WTO is in stalemate in this, in this sense. And instead, we are moving towards a regionalization. In other words, closer integration between countries within certain regions. Uh, Raymond, you didn't mention specifically the uh, China and China and how China was dealing with coronavirus and lockdowns in China. And we just saw uh, Xi Jinping, the president, appointed for a third term. And it looks like they're going to insist on a very 
a specific a policy that is causing uh, disruption globally. So I think this is making things worse. Uh, what is your assessment of of the China COVID policy? Yes, China China co zero COVID uh, uh, policy is another factor, uh, which is of course aggravating those trends towards deglobalization because of course this is reducing enormously the connections between China, not only in terms of goods and services, but also people, because it's very difficult, for example, I don't want to visit China. Uh, and so uh, this, is, this is an additional factor. But uh, uh, over and above that, China, as well as other regions, uh, is, is thinking of a different strategy uh, to place itself in the global economy. Globalization has been a, an important driver for uh, an, an element of progress for China. I mean, you, the progress made in terms of cutting poverty numbers have been very impressive. Economic growth has been very impressive in China, partly because of uh, this uh, globalization. But now um, China is moving towards a different strategy. They rather think a, a bit like Europe uh, in terms of strategic autonomy, in terms of technology. They rather want to have leadership in certain sectors, in particular high-tech sectors and access to energy, of course, extremely important. Uh, and this came, is, is becoming much more important looking forward, uh, um, to uh, looking to the future for China. The same with the United States and Europe, I would say. So we're talking about, in a way, implicitly, relatively converging um, strategies in the main economic zones in the world, the main actors of the world. And what, what, is, what are the main implications of these tendencies for the, the global economy? For the global economy, I would say the you know the main implication is that probably the um, the global trend in uh, in trade and goods and services and global competition, which was very stiff as a result of globalization, in a way was a factor behind low inflation, and deglobalization is probably one of the reasons why it's going to be very uh, difficult to go back to the area where we had zero or even negative inflation rates and therefore zero or negative interest rates. So this is a big, uh, it's a big shift. So I think it's it's particularly worrying for Europe because in Europe uh, we, we're seeing inflation remarkably high also due to the prices of energy and the dependencies of uh, uh, when it comes to energy being imported from Russia. So on top of that factor, you see as the deglobalization uh, elements going against having reasonable amounts of inflation in the EU? Yes, I think the, uh, I think the, this means that probably uh, the main priority will not be to have cheap inputs, but rather to have secure inputs and secure sources of supply. And this will have a counterpart in terms of prices. Uh, having more security in terms of uh, supply chains, in, ter or in terms of access to me uh, medical, uh, supply, for example, at the time of the pandemic or uh, secure energy will have a price and is having a price already. And so this means that uh, it's adding upward pressure on prices over and above what we see in energy markets, which is another sign of deglobalization in a way, because the energy crisis uh, can also be understood from the point of view of geopolitical tensions and therefore uh, in difficulty in securing access sometimes from very far away to uh, cheap energy sources. Obviously, there's, there's going to uh, be a time of adaptation when it comes to uh, for, for the member states in the European Union to adapt to uh, having less 
trade globally. And I'm, I'm thinking particularly about Germany. Obviously, not all member states are equally open to global trade flows, but there are some countries particularly exporting particularly high volumes of, of, of goods uh, and importing uh, particularly high numbers of products. I'm thinking about, about for instance, Germany and, and its relationship with China and whether any comments on, on whether some member states may be more exposed and more fragile when it comes to facing these new trends? Yes, I think the impact will be very different across EU uh, member states. Uh, on the one hand, there are member states such as Germany, which has based pretty much its economic model, in particular its industrial model, on sourcing of um, uh, 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 from very, sometimes from you know countries like China and from from uh, very uh, 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 far away destinations, uh, sourcing of uh, particular inputs, and therefore uh, the movement towards legalization is a challenge to its economic model. And I think this will become, it will mean that there is, there's going to be a very difficult transition of, for a country like Germany to find alternative sources of supply, uh, of equivalent supply, from the point of view of trade, but also from the point of view of energy, which with reliance, as we now know all, um, on, on, on Russia in particular, on Russian gas and other, and other such supplies. Other countries, by contrast, may uh, face, of course, very difficult uh, short-term impacts of this uh, degradation transition, but uh, they may um, also benefit from some opportunities. I'm thinking in particular of those countries uh, which offer ample uh, labour supply at, at a reasonable cost, along with access to energy, to uh, relatively abundant uh, sources of energy, renewable energy or liquefied gas, such as Spain, uh, Portugal and other such countries. So these countries may become magnets of um, investment or relocation of uh, global supply chains and therefore they may have some opportunities in the medium term if they are able to seize them, because of course none of this is automatic. They will have to implement the right policies as well have uh, stronger energy connections, uh, ensure that, uh, you know, labour force is qualified and so on and so forth. But yet, I think there is an opportunity for those countries. So all EU countries will, will be facing the same, in a way, challenge in the short term. But medium term, looking forward, there may be different impacts um, uh, 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 between them, between, for example, Germany and Southern Europe. What about looking at benefits? What about what are the implications for job creation and perhaps even opportunities for reducing inequalities in the, in the EU? Is this something realistic? Well, I, I, I'm not sure it will be uh, the impact will be so significant in terms of inequality. It is true that uh, in the first area of globalization uh, for in this century, which is the early 2000s, uh, went hand in hand with uh, growing income inequalities. Uh, in particular, low-skilled workers uh, and other such groups were losers in, the, in this process. Uh, but uh, it's, it's not a guarantee that a reversal, so a move towards deglobalization, will, will also undo the inequalities, because some of these inequalities are, have become entrenched. Uh, but also because in order to benefit uh, from those trends I was mentioning before, the relocation of activities, um, and the uh, less competition from very low-wage locations, such as in Asia, um, e, e, you, you, you also require additional policies which may or may not happen, for example, in terms of uh, facilitating the 
relocation of workers between sectors, the movement, you know, the transition of workers between sectors or uh, training activities. And you, you, we have to also, you shouldn't forget that uh, uh, parts of industry have disappeared. And so there may be an opportunity to rebuild the industrial base. This will require significant investment, both physical and human, in order to benefit from those uh, potential opportunities which may arise with global with deglobalization. Um, Raymond, before we, we we close this this conversation, I wanted to ask you more helicopter view perspective on what is happening because I'm tempted I'm tempted to say we're entering into a new area where geopolitical goals may become more important than economic gains, and I'm tempted to say as well that we're turning back some decades in time, perhaps to the pre-Second World War period. This, uh, do you agree with those comments? There are some similarities with the pre-Second World War period, which was also preceded, by the way, by uh, a wave of globalization, the first wave of globalization, as well as technological change. And, uh, and you know, this led to increased inequalities at the time, uh, inflation, indeed hyperinflation, a crisis, and fragmentation in the economy as well as in society. Uh, of course, the situation is not quite the same in the sense that the, the crisis is much less serious and we have now welfare states, which allow us to cushion the effect of this. But there are some similarities and I think uh, in particular fragmentation implications, the social and economic fragmentation implications need to be taken into account. And so this new area that we're entering uh, it, it means that uh, policies should uh, indeed uh, avoid further fragmentation and uh, ensure that those who really need help will get this help. I think that uh, the light motive for 2023, according to the IMF and other organizations, is to help the vulnerable, both vulnerable uh, households, which are facing high inflation, but also vulnerable enterprises, which may disappear, even though they may be viable as a result of the uh, energy crisis uh, and so uh, that that's very important and also i think another another uh, it's also very important to uh, move beyond the previous strategy in europe which was one of in a way let's rely on international exchange international trade uh, for our development and move towards more strategic autonomy but do that in, in practical terms and not just in discourse and ensure that uh, we are relevant, again, in terms of technology activity, not just as consumers, but also as producers of this activity, in semiconductors, for example. The same as we are seeing in, in terms of energy uh, may happen in the future for semiconductors because we are extremely vulnerable to and, and rely on imports uh, from Asia in, in that area, which is absolutely crucial for any economic activity uh, nowadays. So I would say, yes, we have some similarities and this is why we need to uh, use the lessons from history in order to not to receive, repeat the same mistakes and ensure that uh, a certain cohesion, social cohesion and also economic cohesion to avoid fragmentation also from the economic point of view. We need some uh, lessons learned very badly, and I, I like those comments about relying. Not we don't we cannot rely anymore simply on the fact that we can uh, trade with all parts of the world and be agile and flexible, but rather we need to invest in the right industries to be uh, strategically autonomous. That's that's um, that's a great comment to end this this chat, Raymond. Um, thank you so much as always. Thank you very much, Carlos, for this very interesting conversation. 
Thank you all for joining. This was all for now. We will come back soon with more exciting speakers on Europe's economic and policy-related key debates. Future is Blue is a Funcas Europe initiative. I'm Carlos Carnicero Ravallen, and if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to recommend it to others and share it on social media. Thank you all and stay well.